Have you ever noticed that when you are, uh, maybe there's time in your life when you're being more dedicated spiritually? Um, and, and so maybe that means like you've just determined I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make church a priority. And so, you know, we're going we're gonna to be there. The doors are open. Um, we're going to be there. Maybe, uh, maybe for you it's a commitment for like uh, reading your Bible. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to spend a few minutes, maybe get a verse of the day or whatever. Uh, maybe it's um, praying more frequently. And so you've just made a commitment that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, I'm going to engage God, uh, not just like in the morning or not just when I eat or not just at night, but throughout the day. Um, or, or, or maybe like just sharing your faith. Like you just, I need to be more willing to talk to people and, and somebody asks, I need to be able to tell them about the hope that I have in, in Christ. And so what happens in, when we make this determination, we decide to be more dedicated spiritually, like almost every single time that happens, we become more distracted mentally or physically or financially, right? So we make a decision to be more, more spiritually dedicated, and then something else happens, we, we, we get hurt or there's some physical ailment that we have that's causing us problems and distracting us from focusing on those spiritual goals that, that we have. Or, um, or, or maybe just mentally, we just like something happens and, you know, you just get into that kind of funk. Or, um, or maybe it's a financially thing, that, the financial thing that, that happens and, and, and all of a sudden you're just you're worried about that and you're focused on that and it's hard to get off of that. I, have you experienced that before? Um, if you've experienced that, I, I, I hope that, that you have. If you've experienced that and you're on, online, just drop a, one of those raise hand emoji things in the, in the comments. Because most of us, at some point, if you've ever made that decision, you've ever tried, like, okay, God, I'm going like, to, church is open, I'm going to be in church. And then always like something that a car breaks down or we have some other um, struggle. Again, when you read through the Bible, you'll, you'll discover, you're paying attention, you'll discover that that virtually every recorded prophet or priest or king in the biblical narrative, so you should read the story, Old Testament, New Testament, virtually every one of them experienced a spiritual valley. They experienced a time when, like, just spiritually, everything just seemed like the bottom just seemed to fall out of, of life. And, and most of the time, those spiritual valleys come after some spiritual peak event. So something happens in their relationship to God, God reveals himself in some way, or, or, or some miracle comes through them, and, and, and then it's like this huge thing, and you're like, oh my goodness, this guy is just like gr- the greatest. And then right after that, there's some, there's some spiritual valley that, that happens. And if you look um, through scripture, you, you'll see it. it happened to Moses. He experienced this. So did King David. So did the apostle Peter experience this valley time after a peak. Uh, Today, we're going to kick off a brand new message series called Valleys and Peaks. And we're going to look at four biblical characters over the course of this month who experienced a, a soaring spiritual high and then almost to, to like immediately move into this depressing, soul-crushing low in their life. And, and so this, this whole series this month is going to help us gain an awareness of what to do when we do and when we don't feel God's presence 
in our lives. Because that's a struggle for a lot of us, right? We, we make a spiritual decision. We think everything should go well. We think God should be like on our side and be helping us through that. And then we don't feel like God is there. We don't feel like God is listening. We don't feel like God is showing up. And that leads us into these just times of depression and into spiritual valleys. And so today we're going to start with one of my favorite events um, in, in Scripture. One of my most favorite events. Um, it's the story of Elijah. And um, what happens is that in the story, in 1 Kings 18 and 19, Elijah experiences this incredible power of, of God is, is like released through Elijah. And then right after that, it's like this in, incredible low that happens. And so what we're going to learn and what we're going to look at is that spiritual success does not keep you from spiritual storms. Spiritual success does not keep you from spiritual storms. And I, and I think this is what a lot of us think, that when life is going well, you know, I'm, I'm coming to church, I'm giving, I'm serving, I'm sharing my faith, I'm doing all of the, the spiritual things that, you know, the pastor talks about doing if you're, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus. And so we expect that God is just going to show up and everything is going to go good in our lives, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're taught today, that if you just give your life to Jesus, if you live for him, if you pray to him, if you give to some church, if you read your Bible or whatever, that God's going to show up and he's going to just make everything great in your life and it's just going to be good. The, the problem is that, that that is not at all what happens in the Bible when you read the stories of the characters. In fact, you, you think about, let's see, the apostles, New Testament, right? Jesus died, buried, resurrected, Holy Spirit is living with them. And you go, the apostles should experience the best in life because they're living for Jesus better than anybody probably um, around that time and, and since that time. And yet all of the disciples are like murdered in pretty horrible ways. I think John is the only one traditionally that, that dies of natural causes of old age. And all the others are, are, are crucified or they're drawn and quartered or they're like, it's like bad stuff. And so we, we don't see this play out in scripture at all, even though we kind of expect it in, in our own lives. And so when we're experiencing spiritual success, we probably should be prepared for a spiritual, spiritual storm. Um, when we are more dedicated or more disciplined in our spiritual journey, we actually set ourselves up for more direct attacks from Satan. And so when that happens to us, when those spiritual attacks begin, we shouldn't be surprised by those, those things. In fact, when those spiritual attacks begin, it should actually strengthen our resolve. You go back to Scripture and, and, and you read this, that we should have joy when we're experiencing persecution because, because Satan is essentially being aware of, of the life that we're living. And so there should be some joy. Like, I'm getting to suffer for Jesus 
because of of the calling on on my life. And so scripture tells us we actually should be happy about those things. Not like happy, yay. Um, But you know, like like happy, like I'm living the kind of life that God would have me live because I'm experiencing these spiritual attacks. So we're going to jump in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19 in just a minute. But before we get there, because some of this stuff is like it's difficult for us because we want life to go good, right? And sometimes it doesn't. And we struggle in that. So let's start off this morning um, with some prayer, all right? Father God, thank you for um, just being present with us this morning already. Thank you for the songs that we, that we say, sang from um, a communion thought that Bill shared. Uh, just the opportunity to be here and to be together. It's encouraging to us to see our friends and our church family ar- around. And so, um, God, as, as we get ready to dive into your word, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Give us a heart that is open to listen to you because you want to share something with us this morning. You want to encourage us and you want to show us how much you love us. And so, God, just help us to be aware today of your um, presence and not just today because it's easy today to feel your presence and, and, and go, wow, you know, Holy Spirit was involved and and was there. But God, help us to feel that come, come Wednesday and Thursday and Friday of this next week. To, to know, as Bill said, that, that you are with us each and every day and you walk with us throughout the whole week. And not just as we come together to worship. And, and so, Father, um, tune us in, right, for the next little bit. Um, help us to be engaged in, in what's going on and help us to hear what you would like to, to share with us. In Jesus' name. So what we're going to discover uh, today as we look at 1 Kings 18 and 19 is that times of great spiritual victory are often followed by times of great spiritual deficiency. Times of great spiritual victory are often followed by times of great spiritual deficiency. And, and both of those times, whether, um, whether, it's, whether it's victory or deficiency, Both of those times are opportunities for us to witness God's faithfulness in our lives. So uh, let me set the stage for you uh, in regards to what is going to happen in the story when we jump into 1 Kings um, 18. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 16. We learn two important things at the end of chapter 16 about what's going on with God's people. So we just wrapped up a series where we're talking about uh, Moses and the Israelites and their exodus from Egypt. They wander in the desert for 40 years. And we kind of, we didn't cover the whole span of that 40 years. But we ended um, in, the, in the institution of the covenant between God and between the Israelite people, right? They get to Mount Sinai in the desert. Moses goes up the mountain. God speaks to the people. And they enter into this covenant where, like, if you do what I want you to, then I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And they spend another um, something like 38 years then wandering in the, in the desert and learning who God is. We're going to jump to 1 Kings 16 where we're about 600 years after that event at Mount Sinai. Okay, so about 600 years has, has passed. David has become king. Solomon has become king. And we're, we're not very far from that, uh, those events happening. In the last 30 years, though, so after King Solomon dies, 30 years as we lead up to 
1 Kings 16, there's a major event that happens. The nation of Israel is split into two. There's the northern tribes, ten tribes that take the name Israel, and they basically have split off from the line of David, right? So God makes David king, anoints David king, and he says, you're going to be king forever. Your line is going to be king forever in Israel. But the ten northern tribes decided, we're not going to follow King David's line anymore. We're going to set up our own king. We're going to do our own thing. And so the ten northern tribes become the nation of Israel. The southern two tribes of the twelve tribes of, of, of Jacob or Israel become known as Judah. Judah uh, was uh, one tribe, but it was about the size of the other ten tribes. Right? Judah's this huge tribe. And the nation of Judah geographically encompassed Jerusalem, where the temple of God was. That's where they were supposed to worship. So you have the ten northern tribes of Israel, the two southern tribes of Judah and and Benjamin, but mostly um, Judah, and that's where the temple is. Well, Judah says, Israel, look, you you can come worship at the temple. We're we're both Jews. You can come worship at the temple. And and Israel says, no, we're not going to do that. There's a whole lot of other stuff that happens in there. But basically, the ten northern tribes, they set up their own temple, in their own place, and they begin to go worship. And they don't just, um, they don't, they're not just worshiping God, they're worshiping other false idols as well. So you have this split in the kingdom. Israel abandoned both the temple of God and the worship of God and began to follow the idols of the nations around it. Now, I recognize that this gets really confusing because we talk about the nation of, of Israel, right? And then all of a sudden in the narrative, you've got to disconnect. Now we have the nation of Israel that is not following God and the nation of Judah, the southern tribes, which which is trying somewhat to to follow God and continue to worship in in the temple. So it's a lot of stuff going on. So chapter 16 of 1 Kings ends with the introduction of, of the most evil king of the northern tribes of Israel to date. It's a guy named Ahab. And it says in in verses 30 and 33 of chapter 16 that Ahab did more to disobey the Lord than any king before him. Okay? So chapter 16 is a law, it's a list of kings, all these kings, and it gets to Ahab and says, look, this guy is the worst. He's the worst king that we have had. Now here's how chapter 17 begins. Elijah... We've never heard of this guy before, right? It's the first time he pops up in Scripture. Elijah was a prophet from Tishbe in Gilead. And one day, he just goes to King Ahab and he says, I'm a servant of the living Lord, the God of Israel, and I swear in his name that it won't rain until I say so. There won't even be dew on the ground. And, and this prophecy comes true. No rain for three years after Elijah makes this declaration to King Ahab. Now, during those three years of of drought, um, uh, some pretty amazing things happen through this previously unknown um, prophet. God sends Elijah out into the wilderness because Ahab, as it's not raining, Ahab's decided Elijah is the one who's stopping the rain. If I kill him, maybe it'll rain again. And so Ahab sends out his guys. They are looking for Elijah. They want to find him. They want to kill him so that it might rain again. And so God tells Elijah, go out into the wilderness, and I'm going to take care of you. And so he, he parks Elijah next to a creek, 
And some birds bring Elijah meat and bread twice a day, and he's sustained there for a long time. But eventually, because of the drought, the creek dries up, and um, Elijah's like, okay, God, what do I do now? And so God sends Elijah to, um, to the town of Zarephath, which is in, uh, this is getting a whole big, lots of stuff, is in Sidon. Sidon is the nation uh, where Jezebel, Ahab's wife, is from. And you don't even have to be a Christian to know um, Jezebel is bad news, right? I mean, if you hear the word Jezebel, you just like go, oh my goodness, like that's bad. I I apologize if any of your names are Jezebel. Um, But that's just like the assumption in in Scripture. And um, so let me just tell you, this is just my guess. I have no idea if this is true or not. This would just be my, my, just a wild guess. Um, that, that most, um, I don't know, I, they're called uh, gentlemen's clubs, but um, I don't really know any gentlemen that go there. Uh, so I, I think that's false advertising. But anyway, I, I would guess that, that probably the, the vast majority of those places are called <laughs> Jezebel. Uh, and we have one in Wichita, or at least we, there used to be one in Wichita. Uh, and, and so, like, Jezebel is bad news. And so Ahab um, marries Jezebel, and, and this, is, uh, this is not good. And so Elijah's out in the wilderness. He doesn't know what to do. Uh, Ahab is after him. Uh, Jezebel is from the nation of Sidon. And Sidon worships uh, the gods Baal and Asherah. Uh, and these are, these are bad news, uh, false idols, bad news idols. And in fact, um, part of, of the worship of these two false gods is rampant sexual immorality are associated with Baal and, and Asherah, okay? So um, it just, it's all the way around, this is, this is bad news idols, and Jezebel brings them. And when um, <laughs> Elijah says, God, the creek is dried up, Where, what am I going to do? God says, Elijah, basically go to the hometown of Jezebel and hang out there, which is completely weird. And so Elijah goes there and he meets a widow and uh, he, he sees her and he says, hey, would you make me some bread? She says, well, I'd love to, uh, but I'm getting ready to make my last loaf of bread with a little bit of flour and oil that I have. I'm going to feed it to my son and I'm going to eat what's left over and then we're going to die because I have nothing else. There's, there's, no, there's no hope for me. There's no water for me. I have no money. I can't get any more food. But we're preparing to die. And so Elijah says, look, if you go home and you make me some bread first so that I can eat, God will make it so that your flour jar and your oil jug never run out until the drought is over. So, so if, you'll, if you'll feed me first, God will make sure that you and your son have enough food um, for the rest of the drought. And that's exactly what happens. Elijah, in fact, is kind of supported by her. and She cooks for him for the uh, remainder of, of the drought. And, and, and it's, it's a part of that story. The, the widow woman's son dies and Elijah brings him back to life. So there's all kinds of things happening um, in, in these verses, these chapters um, with, with Elijah. Like, it's like nobody knows him, and then all of a sudden he's there, and all these things are, are, are happening. Well, eventually God tells Elijah to come out of hiding, to go find Ahab, and to challenge Ahab and the prophets of Baal 
to kind of a duel of the gods. And so we're going to read that next in 1 Kings 18. There's a whole bunch, so stick with me. Ahab got everyone together, and then they went to meet Elijah on uh, Mount Carmel. Elijah stood in front of them, and he said, How much longer will you try to have things both ways? You're going to to try to worship these false idols, and you're going to try to kind of halfway worship God. You've got to pick, he says. Uh, If the Lord is God, worship him. And the Lord is capitalized. We learned this in the last series. Every time you see the term Lord capitalized, it's uh, referring to the um, Jewish name for God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, as as we might say it. And so he says, if if Yahweh is God, worship him. But if Baal is God, then then worship him. And the the people are like, quiet. They They don't say anything. So Elijah continues, I am the Lord's only prophet. That, that was not true, by the way. There was a hundred more of them that he knew of. But anyway, uh, there, that day on Mount Carmel, he was the only one. I guess that's what he's saying. Uh, but Baal has 450 prophets here on the mountain. Bring us two bull, bulls. Baal's prophets can take one of them, kill it, and cut it into pieces. Then they can put the meat on the wood without lighting the fire. I'll do the same thing with the other bull, and I won't light a fire under it either. The prophets of Baal will pray to their God. I'll pray to the Lord, the one who answers by starting the fire on the sacrifice. He is God. Well, then they go, that's a good idea. Now, you've got to understand, why would they say that's a good idea? Because um, (laughs) false gods, idols, are, are made of like, you know, wood and, and clay and, and metal, right? They're, they're fake. They're, they're made to look like people or animals or, or whatever. There's nothing to it. But Satan uses those to, um, to fool people. And, and so there has always been spiritual activity around the worship of idols. And, and I believe that the prophets of Baal thought it was a good idea because they had seen that demonic spiritual activity at work. They were like, hey, Let's try it, right? <laughs> so they had seen um, strange spiritual things happen before, and, and they thought it was a good idea. So Elijah said to Baal's prophets, there are more of you, so you go first. Pick out a bull, get it ready, but don't light the fire. Pray to your God. And so they chose their bull. They got it ready. They prayed to Baal all morning long, asking him to start the fire. They danced around the altar, and they shouted, answer us Baal. Now, this was all part of their normal worship. This is what they would do. There were high places of mountain peaks and whatever, uh, hills. And that's where they would put up the Asherah poles and the, uh, under trees and different things. And that would be like the, that's where they would go for their sexual stuff that went along with their worship, right? It was just out in the open. It was kind of crazy. And so um, this was just part of normal part of how they worshiped the, the god Baal. So answer us, Baal. But there was no answer. So noon comes, and then, this is why I like Elijah so much, Elijah begins making fun of them. He says, pray louder. Uh, Baal must be a god, right? I mean, you worship him, you give money to him, you do all these things. Must be, must be a god. Uh, maybe he's daydreaming. Maybe he's using the toilet. That's just a good one, right? Uh, maybe your god's busy because he's relieving himself. Uh, maybe he's traveling somewhere and he's just not here at the time. You need to shout louder or something. Maybe he's asleep and you have to wake him up. 
And so the prophets kept shouting louder and, and louder, and they cut themselves with swords and knives. Again, this was part of the worship. In, in, in Old Testament, ancient times, when you wanted to get the attention of a god, the false god, you had to do something to prove to that god your dedication to them. And so, so this is why part of the worship of the Sidonians with Moloch was to sacrifice your child, throw your baby into the fire of, of Moloch to get your God's attention. And so this was just part of the way they worshiped. So they're cutting themselves with swords and knives and they're bleeding out uh, all over. This was the way they worshiped and they kept it up until the time for the evening sacrifice, uh, which in the afternoon, probably about three o'clock in the afternoon. But there was no answer of any kind. Hmm. Imagine that. So Elijah told everyone to gather around him while he repaired the Lord's altar. Now, if you don't know the rest of the story, let me um, fill you in on what happens next. Elijah prays a simple prayer. It's, It's very short, just a few lines. And God immediately responds with fire from heaven. The fire of God from heaven consumes um, the bull that is on the altar, consumes the bull, consumes the wood that the bull was laying on. God didn't just start a fire. He like big, big fire, like blowtorch out of heaven, right? So the bull is gone. The wood is burned up. The stones that they had picked up off the ground and they had arranged for the altar to put the wood and the bull on, um, they are, are burned up. The 12 jars of water that Elijah had people bring and dump over the bull and the wood and the stone and the ground and made a trough around the altar. The water is burned up and even the dirt under the ground and under the altar and around the altar, all of that is burned up, okay? So God wasn't satisfied with just lighting a match and, um, and burning the sacrifice. He was like, I'm going to show you who I am. And, and so you, you kind of think about how God led the Israelites out of Egypt in the pillar of fire during the day. Very, very similar, probably. This pillar of fire comes down. It consumes the entire, the entire sacrifice and everything around it. Now, immediately, everybody's like, okay, like, Elijah, uh, you win. So the 450 prophets of Baal are seized. They're taken down into the valley uh, below Mount Carmel, and they are all killed down there. Ahab then is distraught, and so he's in his tent um, probably later in the afternoon, and he's like eating. Elijah goes back up to Mount Carmel, and he prays, God, uh, bring the rain. And it begins to rain. It's not just rain a little bit, but big thunderstorm. And Elijah goes down the mountain. He finds Ahab. He says, Ahab, you better get home because it's, it's like this is a goalie washer, right? I'm like, you, you better get out of here. And uh, Ahab gets in his chariot with his, you know, king horse. A king always has the fastest horses. He gets in his chariot and he gets ready to head back to Jezreel. And Elijah, Scripture says, full of the power of God, tucks his cloak into his belt and is in a foot race with the chariot of Ahab. And the chariot of Ahab probably had two or four or six horses, I don't know, running that thing. And Elijah, basically the distance, it was about, it was basically a marathon, 26.2 miles from Jezreel to, uh, or or from Mount Carmel to to Jezreel. And Elijah races the horses and beats them to town. And then this really amazing thing happens. 
uh, Ahab goes and tells Jezebel what happened on Mount Carmel and that God responded and that all 450 of the prophets of Baal are dead and, and, and Jezebel's angry, she's not happy. In fact, in fact she, says, she says this, may, may the gods deal with me severely if Elijah is not dead within the next 24 hours. But Elijah, right, he's been on Mount Carmel. He's seen the fire from heaven consume his altar. Uh, He prayed and it rained. And then he beat Ahab back to town in a a foot race with the horses. And so he hears what Jezebel said, like uh, uh, Elijah's going to die in the next 24 hours. And Ahab goes, Jezebel, I'm not afraid of you. Do, you know, like do your worst. That's what we want the story to say. But that's completely wrong. Jezebel says, Elijah, you're going to be dead within the next 24 hours. And Elijah is terrified of Jezebel's threat. And he takes off and goes back into the wilderness like he was before. All alone, he walks into the desert. He goes down to Judah. And and here's what happened. He walks a whole day into the desert. He he leaves off his assistant in Beersheba, I think it is, and he walks a whole day into the desert. And finally, he came to a large bush, and he sat down in its shade, and he begged the Lord, I've had enough. Just let me die. This this is the mental state that that Elijah is in. I'm just done, God. I'm no better off than my, my ancestors. So he's comparing himself to everybody who's failed in the past. And then he laid down in the shade there and he fell asleep. And then the angel woke him up and said, get up and eat. And Elijah woke up and he looked around and by his head was a jar of water and some baked bread. And he sat up and he ate and he drank. <laughs> and then he laid back down and went to sleep again. <laughs> and soon the Lord's angel woke him up again and, and, and said, uh, get up and eat or else you'll get too tired to travel. And so Elijah sat up and he ate and he drank. The food and the water made him strong enough to walk 40 more days until he reached Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. So Elijah goes back to Mount Sinai where God instituted the covenant with the people of Israel. Times of great spiritual victory are often followed by times of great spiritual deficiency. But both are opportunities to witness God's faithfulness in our lives. After the enormous victory on Mount Carmel accomplished uh, or accompanied by the end of the drought and, and then Elijah's foot race with the chariot, Elijah is spiritually exhausted. And, and, it, and it shows, like we see that. When the next little thing that comes up, Jezebel uh, threatens to kill him, and instead of standing up to her in God's power, which he's seen over and over in the last few hours, he, he, he runs away. So he's had this great spiritual victory, and then he's in this moment of, of spiritual deficiency. God's accomplished all of these things through him, and then he just goes, ah, I'm afraid. When we forget, I think, when we forget that it's God working 
in and through us to accomplish his will in our lives, we then start to rely on our own strength, our own ability, our own smarts to get us um, to the next thing. And, and when we do that, <laughs> that's when we fail. That's when we fall. And, and honestly, we see it over and over again. Uh, pastors who build these great churches and everything seems to be going great and, and then have a moral failure or they, they, they begin drinking or something else happens in their life. They have these great spiritual victories and then they have these great spiritual deficiencies. And, and I was thinking about how, like, that's the story for everybody. It's the story for the prophets and the priests and the king in the Old Testament. and the, It's the story of the apostles in the New Testament. It's our story today. And, and, and I only came up with one person who I could say that wasn't the story for him. Jesus begins his ministry and he's baptized in the Jordan River by John. And it's this great spiritual moment. You go to Luke and read the story, the Gospels, uh, Matthew and Mark, and Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and it says the sky opens up, and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus in the form or like a dove. And it's this incredible moment, and God speaks about his son. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He's like, like, like Jesus, I am proud of of you for what you've just done. It's this great spiritual moment where God the Father reveals his, his pride in his son Jesus. And the very next thing that happens is that Jesus leaves being baptized in the Jordan. And instead of going west back into town, he goes east out of the Jordan River into the desert and the wilderness. And he's there for 40 days like Elijah. <laughs> and, and while he's there, it says he doesn't eat anything for 40 days. At the end of 40 days, he's, he's hungry, and he's tired, and he's spiritually exhausted. And that's when Satan comes. Satan comes to tempt Jesus, only Jesus doesn't give in to those t temptations. Jesus says to Satan, um, don't you know that man should not live by bread alone? And so Jesus was able to resist Satan when everybody before him and everybody since had failed. And what I find really interesting is that <laughs> the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. And then Elijah comes and he goes into the desert 40 days. And then Jesus comes and he goes into the wilderness of the desert for 40 days. Do you see this pattern recurring? Jesus is wandering in the desert like the Israelites did. Except Jesus doesn't give in like the Israelites did. He comes out on the other side because his strength and his power didn't come from him. It came from God. And so when he faces Satan, uh, like Elijah faced Jezebel, and like Israel faced their enemies in the desert, he doesn't do it in his own strength. He quotes scripture back to Satan. He stands in the strength and the power 
of God. And here's what we learn from Elijah and what we learn from Jesus. If you think God is only working in your life when things are going well, you're going to miss out on all the growth that comes from spending time in the wilderness. If, if, we, if, we, if we think God is only working when life is good, then when life is bad, when those valleys, spiritual, physical, emotional, financial valleys come, then we think God must not be happy. Or we think God must not be doing what I think he should do. And when we blame God, we think something else is wrong, then we lose the lesson that we ought to learn in the desert, in the valley, in the wilderness. See, if we think it's something else, God, I've done everything right. Why is this happening to me? And we miss out on what God is trying to show us. You think about all the people in the Bible who spent time in the wilderness. Noah, Moses, Israel, Abraham, Jesus, and Paul, and Job, and just about every other person that we encounter in Scripture. It's in the wilderness where their faith is tested and God's faithfulness is proven. Because it's in the wilderness that we discover that God is as powerful in times of spiritual triumph as he is in times of spiritual, mental, or physical torment. The, the same God that is working so mightily when you're on the peak is still working mightily when you're in the valley. And so does God want you to experience valleys uh, that life throws at you? Does God want you to experience those difficult times when financial or physical or mental problems and depression and all kinds of stuff are fit? Does he want that for us? No. No, he doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want us to suffer. He doesn't want us to be in torment. But he also knows that that's where the growth happens. And I think the thing we've got to, to figure out, if we're honest with ourselves, is that most of the time, our wilderness or desert or valley experiences come at our own hand. I made a poor decision. I made the wrong choice. I did the wrong thing. And now I'm in the desert. I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the valley. But, but God is just as powerful in those valleys as he is on the peaks. Elijah chose to run from Jezebel. And God didn't make him do that, didn't make him run into the wilderness, but God knew that he would. And so God is there and involved in Elijah's wilderness experience. A guy by the name of Chuck de, de Groat gave commentary on what the 15th century author John of the Cross called La Noche es Oscura. And I probably butchered that, okay? I didn't take Spanish in high school. <laughs> La Noche Oscura, or, or the dark night. And so Chuck said this, it's easy to miss this moment of, of grace, like when we think we're in the dark night. I love the fact that he calls the valley the moment of grace, especially if we fail to ask deeper questions about what God might be up to. See, when we're enduring mental or physical or financial torment, when we're in the dark night, when we're in the valley, the wilderness, the desert, 
The temptation is to feel as though God has let us down, as though maybe he's responsible for our spiritual valley, and so we blame him for the things that we're experiencing. It's in the spiritual valleys, though, when instead of blaming God for what we have to go through, we need to be trusting God to help us grow through those times. And so our question isn't, why me, God? Why do I have to deal with this? Why do I have to struggle with? Why, is, why are you putting this on my plate? The question for us really is, God, what are you up to? God, what do I need to learn about me or about you in this moment? Elijah seems to blame God for his own spiritual failure. But what happens in the rest of chapter 19 is that God lovingly helps Elijah learn that he's never alone. And so Elijah walks into the desert ready to die. And he walks out of the desert ready to do whatever God asks. The construction of 1 Kings chapter 19, where this story is found, is is a type of parallelism. So there's really two halves, two sandwich buns here, this story. And it unveils the purpose of the passage. It's not about Elijah's spiritual valley. It's about God's steadfast faithfulness. And so these two parallel parts of of the story, um, Elijah uh, going into the desert, uh, defeated and and, and feeling terrible and blaming God, and Elijah coming out of, of the desert feeling powerful again and ready to do whatever God calls him to. Between these parallels of great spiritual success and and great spiritual storms, we have to go, what's happening in the middle, in in the meantime? And the answer is change. Change is happening. The renewal of a fearful and burned out prophet who becomes a powerful force for God once again. And so if we can learn to lean into the storms of life, if we can learn to, to face them and bear into them, you'll learn that you don't have to fear them and you don't have to just endure them, like just hang on until I get out. But you can really let God conquer them for you and you can find greater, stronger faith on the other side. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us. And, um, and God, as difficult as it is to, to say this, Thank you for the storms in our life. Thank you for the valleys and the wilderness times and the the times when we feel like we're in just this dry spiritual desert. Because God, it's, it's in those times where you are just as powerful, just as active, just as involved in our lives if we just have eyes to see. And so God, help us to not to run from those times. Help us not just to to try and endure them until things get better, but help us to lean into you, to learn what's the extent of my faith? How much do I trust God? Instead of asking why God is this happening to me, help us to ask questions that actually feed our faith. God, What are you up to in this moment? 
God, what do I need to learn from this experience? And then we trust every day that God is working, that he's present, that he's there in our lives. And so, God, would you help us do that as we walk through this next week with you and in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, next week, part two of uh, peaks, uh, valleys and, and peaks. And, and we're going to look at a, a peak and a valley uh, moment in the life of the Apostle Paul. And so I hope you join me again, either here in person or online. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in to Real Life Live. Our hope and prayer is that the time you've spent with us has left you encouraged and challenged in your faith. It may have also left you with some questions or maybe wondering how all this faith stuff works. So we want to help you with that. Head over to reallifecc.us for a few different ways we can connect. We're thankful you joined us today and want to extend an invitation for you to join us in person at our current home in El Dorado, Kansas at the Civic Center, 201 East Central on Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope You'll keep tuning in and growing in your faith to look more like Jesus every day. See you next time.